Welcome to Myanmar in a Potshell, the podcast that puts current developments in Myanmar into context. My name is Rodion Abekhausen, and the title of today's episode is War and Peace, Myanmar's Armed Struggle Two Years After the Coup d'Etat. I would like to discuss the topic with Anthony Davis and Zakaria Buza. So let me introduce our guests. Anthony Davis is a Bangkok-based security analyst and consultant with extensive field experience of a range of armed conflicts across the Asian region. He writes primarily for Jane's security and defense titles, in addition to undertaking consultancy work for international corporations and non-governmental organizations. And Zachary Abuza is a professor at the National War College in Washington, D.C., where he focuses on Southeast Asian politics and security issues, including governance, insurgencies, democratization and human rights, and maritime security. So thank you very much for joining us today, and let's start with the discussion. Um, our knowledge and information about the ongoing armed conflict in Myanmar is primarily derived from open source intelligence and media, which is, I would say, morally aligned to the resistance. So is this fact uh, helping to pierce the so-called fog of war in Myanmar? Um, and what do we actually know and how good is our information about what's happening on the ground in Myanmar in relation to the armed struggle? Yes, I would. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for the invitation to join the podcast. Um, and uh, I hope it'll, it'll be uh, an interesting hour. Um, my my basic point when it comes to information regarding the armed struggle in Myanmar right now is that we have a lot of information. There's a lot of reporting being done by a range of Burmese publications, and that is assisted to, to a very considerable degree by what's appearing on social media. But The problem is that a lot of what is coming out is, as you uh, intimated in your introduction, it tends to be coming from one side of the struggle. And we're, what we're not really uh, able to assess in a way that would be more helpful is the extent to which the regime is managing or not managing to cope with Uh, resistance activities, be they coming from PDFs or from uh, ethnic resistance organizations, EROs. So there is a wealth of data, but analyzing that data in a manner that produces clarity is actually an extremely challenging task. There is this saying, I don't know, I, I think it's in English, the same, like the first victim of war is truth. And if we take this saying, and, and what would you say, Zach, what is available on data and, and how can we get through the fog of war and what do we know? Right. Uh, I would agree with what Anthony said. We have reporting coming out and the problem is there are parts of the country with internet lockdowns um, and so information is not coming out and it's not coming out in a really systematic way. I think in terms of the fog of war and how we pierce it, there's unfortunately not been enough good reporting and and trying to look at it systematically. There, there are too many separate battlefields and we're not getting a very good picture of the overall landscape. You know, we get can get some very good reporting out of a certain region of the country, um, but it's disjointed and we, we really need to get a better sense of what it looks like. Um, Myanmar is a very large country, and this is a multi-front war. Yeah, to, to add to that, I mean, I, I think that Zach is right insofar as it's a multi-front war, right? And what I said just now relates to the fact that we're getting reporting, some of it good, some of it mediocre, some of it not so good, from a lot of these different fronts. There's a lot of fragmentary reporting coming in from uh, all of these areas. The difficulty is, as Zach already said, is 
putting this into a broad into broad context, making sense out of these fragments. In other words, putting the jigsaw together to see a clearer picture. Now, you know, as analysts, I think both of us are doing our best reading what is available in open source literature uh, to to do this and to certainly I see it as as as, as my job to attempt, uh, and that's all it can be, an attempt to bring all these pieces of the jigsaw and have a stab, if you like, at um, a broad picture, be it in one part of the country or perhaps more usefully for people who read what I write in terms of the overall national picture. So in that context, I mean, we're not blind. There is a lot of data coming out and um, analysts have access to this sort of data. And I think between us, what is emerging is a not inaccurate picture of what is happening, where the strengths are, where the weaknesses are, how this has shifted over the last two years, and perhaps most interestingly, where it might be going. So um, it would be wrong to say that we don't really understand what's happening in Myanmar because it's remote and because of the difficulties of reporting, et cetera, et cetera. Broadly speaking, we do. And I spent a good deal of my early career in Afghanistan in the 1980s, which in many ways was a very similar struggle. And, and, and the dynamics in each area were very different. So in that regard, it's quite similar to what's happening in Myanmar today. But when you stand back and when you look at the sort of the aggregate picture, I think it's still possible to make useful assessments as to where this is going and why. We know now that that we have a reliable picture. I would like to ask uh, uh, or go to another point. So while, of course, armed struggle is not the only means of resistance to bring down the SAC, uh, I'm thinking, for example, about the civil disobedience movements. But my impression is that um, it is the central means of the NUG, like the armed struggle. And I would like to know, do you agree with my assessment? And um, what do you think about uh, like putting everything or like making it the most major issue uh, of, of the resistance, the armed struggle? I think the armed struggle has to be the centerpiece of the resistance. In terms of their resources, that's where they're putting the money they're raising. And so they believe it's central to this. The civil disobedience movement is important in terms of legitimizing the NUG. And the fact that you have every day civil disobedience uh, demonstrations, uh, uh, strikes, um, flash mobs from one end of the country to the other, against incredible odds. I mean, the security forces are shooting to kill and, and people are still not deterred by this. Um, so it is a, a clear sign of uh, anti-coup resistance, but that's not enough. And I think it's essential that the NUG is able to, um, they're never going to defeat the military. They're not going to march into Naypyidaw um, and, and, and capture this. The way their path forward is simply hollowing out the military by forcing them to fight a multi-front war. We know that the Burmese military has always fought wars, but if you look at their history, they fight in one region uh, until they can reach a stalemate. They will then um, sign some sort of ceasefire agreement and then move on to the next struggle. They have never had to fight a multi-front war the way they are doing right now. And so that is the key to the NUG success. The question is whether they're able to sustain it. The three most important things in war are logistics, logistics, logistics. Um, thank you. Maybe we can come to this logistics point a, a bit later, but I would like to also ask Anthony if he thinks that armed struggle is the best and the only option 
In a word, yes. I mean, both of you have summed up exactly what the situation is. I mean, without armed struggle and without some form of military progress, momentum, this thing risks this the whole resistance movement, the federal democratic revolution, call it what you will, there is a serious risk that it begins to backslide, to go backwards. So the armed struggle is, is uh, Zach used the word central. I, I'd go further. It is fundamental. It is central and fundamental. And if the combination of the NUG and the ethnic allies cannot get the armed struggle right, then they're in serious trouble. I would like to know from other conflicts you have been studying, and Anthony, you already mentioned Afghanistan, and Zachary, you said like it's about logistics, logistics, logistics. So I would like to know maybe from other conflicts or insurgencies and resistance movements you have studied, so what are indications that point to success and what are indications that point to failure? Immediately after the NUG declared offensive operations, they were faced with the daunting task of, well, how do you do it? Um, and, and they put together these people's defense forces. The problem for them, and they had no shortage of people that were willing to take up arms. The problem is they didn't have arms or they didn't have sufficient ammunition. You had several hundred of these PDFs emerge, and they were very much based to their local community, which is both a strength and a weakness. Um, the problem, you know, they're very organic. They have popular support. Um, they know the terrain. The problem is that the NUG had trouble getting them under a single command structure. If they were not offering them money or arms, there was very little way that they could enforce discipline and cohesion. And so what you have in Myanmar is rather than the NUG leading a single struggle, you know, there are 500 separate conflicts out there. And because they don't coordinate terribly well, um, and some of it is based on mistrust of one another due to ethnicities or uh, uh, just being divided in a country with very weak core infrastructure. But part of it's actually communications. They don't have the radios, secure communications to communicate and coordinate with one another. Um, and so instead of having a single unified command, there, there are 500 different militaries trying to accomplish this. And there's no economy of scale and there's no real discipline. And, and that that's a weakness for the NUG. It's In some ways, it's a strength. Um, but that's important. The other thing that was central to the, the NUG is that they were able to forge very early on close working relationships with several key ethnic resistance organizations. Not all of them. Uh, several of them have uh, sat this one out. They are waiting to see. Um, some are aligned with the military junta. Uh, but uh, that they had a few of the key ethnic resistance organizations that was able that were able to uh, train and equip uh, their PDFs was very important. Yes, Anthony, given your, your experience, as I said before, like you mentioned Afghanistan, like what, what, is, what are indications that point to failure and what point to success and, and what can we find in Myanmar at the moment? Okay, well, let me, let me say this first. I think we have to look a little bit at the last two years, where this has come from, and then perhaps look at where we are today and what might happen in 2023. So the coup happened in February of 2021, and that year basically involved both sides taking up positions. So as we all know, on the resistance side, we saw massive peaceful demonstrations, hundreds of thousands, maybe several millions of people pouring into the streets, um, followed by a very brutal crackdown, followed in turn by a realization that if the resistance is to prevail, if the coup is to be put back in its box, then we need to fight. We need to take up arms. And 
there was this proliferation of PDFs across the country. And at the same time, the Tatmadaw was clearly surprised by everything that happened. They weren't expecting this level of popular um, resistance, be it peaceful and later armed. So both sides in 2021 were sort of taking stock of the situation and where they wanted it to go. 2022, we saw a very different situation in which both sides were displaying their strengths and weaknesses. So what initially was resistance using very, very basic weapons, hunting rifles, homemade stuff, became rather better armed and certainly better organized, not least given support from EROs. Um, the Kachin in the north, the Karani in the east, the Karen in the east, and the Chin in the west, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily. And, and these e EROs made the fundamental difference that was in that enabled the resistance to find its feet and to stand up. That was on the resistance side. On the Tatmador side, there was a growing realization that we're going to need to prosecute this war in a certain way. We're going to need to adopt a certain strategy and certain tactics. So both sides essentially squared up for the fight. And my own sense, Zach may agree, he may disagree, um, but my own sense is 2023 is probably a year of decision. And we're all aware of what the Tatmadaw has done and can do, both in terms of what it's been doing in, in terms of terrorizing the countryside, burning down villages, um, and also, and not least, uh, what it can bring to bear in terms of air power. So this is a this is not some ragtag military. This is a, a professional um in a technical sense this is a professional well-organized armed force uh we may think of it as politically deluded uh as having lost its way morally those things may well be true but let's not kid ourselves that this is some ragtag army it's not it's a lot more than that so my sense is that in 2023 it is critically important for the resistance to adopt broadly a strategy which is based on three things. The first is destroying enemy forces. And I think Zach made sort of reference to this in, in some of his earlier comments, but I would sort of underscore it in different words. The strategy needs, whatever part of the country it's in, it needs to be targeted on destroying enemy forces, destroying the Tatmadaw as fighting units. And as an adjunct to that, it should be founded on the overriding need to capture the weapons of those forces that you are destroying. And the third point, which stems from the first two and from experience in 2022 is that it is critically important that at this stage in the war the resistance does not attempt to hold territory if the resistance attempts to follow through on a success by attempting to hold that territory they will be killed because reinforcements will be coming and airstrikes will also be coming. So I think those three those three things, um, destroying enemy forces, capturing their weapons, and not at this point, this year probably, attempting to hold weaponry, this is critically important in my assessment. Uh, if, if I could jump in. Sure. I, I completely agree with that. The, the NUG, there are people within the NUG that have advocated a hundred township strategy that their goal is to take over a hundred of the country's 330 townships 
this to me is disastrous. They don't have the logistics tail to support this. Uh, the military has uh, increased their uh, aerial assets, uh, new helicopter gunships. Uh, we've just seen uh, the delivery of longer range howitzers um, and um, uh, uh, multiple uh, rocket launch systems from China. And, uh, you know, the ability for the military to to target the NUG's forces from a distance has increased a lot. Um, this is they, they cannot be spread so thin. Uh, it will be disastrous for them. What they really need to do in terms of their targeting is focus on two things, in my opinion. The first is they have to target the military's ability to wage war. So they need to think a little bit more about going after the military's logistics, uh, their own defense industries, because this is a country that um, has limited financial means. They They ran the economy into the ground in the past two years. Uh, there are limits to what they can import in terms of munitions. So they're very dependent on domestic production. That has to be targeted. And the other thing is that they, the NUG really needs to think about not just tactical gains, but, but when they use the limited force that they have, it really has to have strategic consequences. You know, they have to go after key economic targets. They have to go after things that will cause the military to overreact. If I understand both of you correctly, you say that it's too early to switch to a kind of conventional warfare. It is still more like trying to overstretch the military by this war of attrition. But um, that is my impression, at least, is that that is something they have been trying in 2022, mainly. And when I listened to the New Year's speech of acting president Duval Ashila, he said, like, this year now is as Anthony said, a, a decision year, and we have to turn it around. And I think here time comes into, what, what would you say is like the, the time frame for this kind of war of attrition and how long do they have to sustain it uh, to get this gains you have mentioning, have been mentioning, Zach, like the strategic games? Yeah, I, what I would say is, I've, I've thought about this a lot, and I think any suggestion that in 2023, victory will be on the horizon is is dangerously delusional and of course a lot of these statements are made by the nug leadership in order to rally the troops and to maintain popular morale and that's entirely understandable but they shouldn't be taken literally the way i would look at this is that what needs to happen in 2023 is that convincing military momentum needs to be established that the resistance forces and the tip of the spear here is very much where the eros and the pdfs come together not where they don't the tip of the spear is in areas like southern kachin uh north uh eastern sagain where the KIA and the PDFs come together in Kaya State, Karen State, um, where they're very much together in Karen and to a lesser extent in Kachin. That's the tip of the spear. So what needs to happen in 2023, in my assessment, is for these areas, in these areas where there is enough weaponry and enough experience to actually make an impact, the resistance needs to strategize how to create, and I'll repeat the words, convincing military momentum. And that military momentum is critically important this year because it will appeal to the ranks of the resistance, those risking their lives and fighting, it will certainly appeal to the vast majority of the Myanmar people. And not least, it will say to the international community, hold on a second, this thing isn't going away. The obverse, of course, of all that is the impact on military morale, on Tatmadaw morale. So if battalion bases 
And let's not forget, a battalion in the Myanmar army is typically not seven or 800 men, as in Europe or in, in most developed militaries, but more likely to be 100 or 150 men. If these sort of bases start going down to well-coordinated, well-planned attacks on a regular basis, by which I mean weekly, this is going to have an impact. It's not going to be easy to achieve, and we can discuss that later, but it's going to have an impact. And I believe, to a degree, I, I, I sort of differ with Zach a little bit here, talking about uh, the the military's you know domestic production of weaponry, my a, a lot of which is in Maguay and in Yangon and in certain parts of the country and not in other parts of the country. So, to the best of my knowledge, there's not much going on in the areas where the resistance is militarily strongest and most effective. Right. So, to go after hard targets like military factories um, with PDFs in Maguay or around Yangon, which are simply not up to that task, risks, unfortunately, um, that would risk unnecessary casualties and losses. So I think there needs to be um, much more of a focus on defining and picking off low-hanging fruit I was wondering, like you mentioned, like military factories, but for example, what about airports? So I was wondering, like, would it be possible to, I don't know, attack an airport and at least destroy the airfield? Would that be possible or is that beyond the capabilities of, of the PDFs? The NUG and the PDFs often uh, decry the fact that they do not have man pads, uh, shoulder launched surface to air missiles to deal with the increased number of air assets that, uh, the, the Tatmadaw has been bringing online. And I would commend, uh, all your listeners to read Anthony's piece in the Asia Times, uh, about, uh, their increased military capabilities. The best way to destroy an air force is not in the air, it's on the ground. Um, that's where planes and helicopters are most vulnerable. And that is possible. Uh, these are, you know, we know how many airfields the country has. We know where they're deploying the planes and the helicopters. Um, it simply requires really good coordination uh, across multiple different PDFs and EROs. Uh, it could be a range. They've been effectively using quadcopters to deliver munitions. Um, it would be a complex operation, but it's not impossible. The other thing that they really need to focus on, and this is really the low uh, hanging fruit that Anthony mentioned, is without jet fuel, you can't fly jets. All jet fuel comes to those upper bases from ports in Yangang or uh, Chokfu, or it's coming overland from Qin and increasingly now from China through Musei. Um, those, those convoys have to be targeted. Without the support of the EAOs, nothing would run or almost nothing would run. Like the NUG and the PDFs are largely dependent on training, education, resupply by the EAOs. But I would like to know, like, how far do you think, uh, or is your assessment, do the interests of the various EAOs and the resistance resemble each other? And as there are so many different uh, EAOs and we cannot discuss all of them, I would like to ask, like, maybe what do you think about the Kachin Independence Army? So how far uh, is there an overlap in interests? Well, that's... You're, you're asking me to look inside the uh, leadership of the... KIO, KIA, and, and tell your listeners what they're thinking, and that's something I can't do. Uh, I don't know what they're thinking, but my assessment more broadly uh, with all these EROs is that they too need to see this momentum that I'm talking about. 
if they perceive the struggle as a whole to be treading water, to be bogging down into some sort of stalemate, which ultimately only favors the military, then it would seem logical that their perspectives will essentially focus on their own states um, and that they might lose this sense of a national revolution or a national overturning of military rule. So I think, I mean, the, the EROs are in, in, a, in a crucial position because not only is their perspective of the struggle important, but at the same time, their contribution to the struggle is important. So we come back again to this question of, you know, what to do this year. And I think if the leadership of the um, the Christian EROs, known as the 3KC, so we've got Karen, Kareni, Kachin, the three Ks and Chin um, in the West, the C, three Ks, um, these are essentially Christian-led organizations and, and largely Christian Christian soldier. If those EROs can come together, can participate in a strategy that begins to bear fruit in the coming year, then it may well be that their perspective on what might happen or what, or, or what could happen in terms of the Tatmadaw's hold on power gradually shifts uh, or maybe shifts even uh, with some speed, depending on the way events work out. But clearly their support for overturning the military is conditioned by the fact that they are not Bama, right? They don't share that Bama perspective of the NUG primarily, Bama organization and a lot of the PDFs. And the other thing, which is a concern, is that the EROs, of course, have been fighting in some cases for decades, in most cases for decades. Um, the Kachin started fighting in, in, in the 1960s. The Karen go back to the 1940s. So these are organizations which have been fighting for decades, but in their own areas with a focus on defensive warfare. And what is now required over the coming year or two years is a shift which they will need to lead on the ground to offensive warfare, right? No, no longer guerrilla tactics at a very local level, but coming together within their own regions, I'm not suggesting a national uh, push here, but within their own regions, they're going to have to reorganize and rethink this in a way that leverages the support they can count on from PDFs, Bamar and local, they're going to have to reorganize their struggle in a way that shifts to an offensive stage of the war. And that in turn is going to require a level of coordination and command and control that we haven't yet seen. And the clock but, is ticking. But, but do you have the impression that they are working on it? That they are working on this shift? I don't, I, I, I'm going to ask Zach to kick in here. I, 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 I don't have a good sense. I mean, what you what what I would say is this, and and then I'll I'll uh, hand over to Zach. I mean, what we're seeing in certainly in the Karen area of operations, which some in some areas goes beyond, it goes into Mon, it goes into Bago. Uh, it's not just Karen state. What we're seeing in the Karen area of operations, and what we're seeing also in Kaya state in the Kareni area of operations, is the beginning of what I was talking about earlier, which are better coordinated attacks on uh, military outposts and, and on, in some occasions uh, against battalion size 
bases which are bearing fruit. And these places have been, in recent days even, overrun and their weapons captured. So it's not as if they are oblivious to what, in my assessment, needs to be done. They're doing it. But it's a question of how broadly can they do it? And if you look at the case, how broadly can they do it and how how aware are they of the, the, the longer term implications of what they're doing? So if you look at the KNLA, the Karen National Liberation Army, which is still the largest of the Karen different forces, you've got seven brigades there, right? Now, to the best of my knowledge, those brigades operate in their own brigade areas. They're not sending men from 5th Brigade to support an operation by 3rd Brigade, which may be necessary if 3rd Brigade wants to overrun a particular base, right? Maybe 3rd Brigade can't do it on its own. It doesn't have the manpower. It doesn't have the weaponry. So they're going to need to call on 5th Brigade uh, or 1st Brigade or whatever other brigade it may be. And this means that, in this case, we're talking about the KNLA, there needs to be a shift in thinking which is about offensive warfare, which by definition requires mobility. Zach, what is your take on this? I would completely agree with that. Um, the EROs have always been defensive. Uh, and I think you can throw in a further complication here, and that is the support of China. Uh, the Chinese have supported many of these groups. You could see the Chinese supporting their right to defensive struggles, uh, but uh, really restraining them uh, when it comes to offensive operations. Uh, simply, the Chinese want a foot in both camps, uh, but they're getting very frustrated that their economic interests and their BRI projects are not going forward. And so we're starting to see a slight tilt towards the junta um, and I, I think the Chinese would uh, really put pressure on any of the groups that they've been supporting over the years should they move to offensive operations. Can I can I kick in there? I mean, sure. I, I, I would add to that. I mean, Zach's right. Obviously, China's position is, is hugely important. But uh, if we're looking at the 3K scenes, right, the Kachin share a long border with China, but they've never been that close to the Chinese. Indeed, the Chinese have regarded them with some, with some degree of suspicion as Christians and as potentially close to the West. So what I would argue is whether we're talking about China or whether we're talking about India or ASEAN states or the wider international community. The bottom line here is that the resistance in Myanmar, if it doesn't know it already, and I think it does, they need to understand fully that there's going to be no support and maybe some uh, some degree of, of um, dissatisfaction with progress on the battlefield. They're not going to get outside support. The only way that the resistance is going to turn this thing around or move it forward to create the momentum that I talked about earlier, the only way is by changing tactics. At, there's a strategic level to this, which I mentioned. There needs to be a strategic understanding that this war is not about this year is certainly not about capturing townships or territory or holding ground. Exactly what Zach was saying, destroying the Tatmadaw's ability to make war. Anything else is going to lead to massive casualties, loss of morale, and potentially defeat, right? So against that strategic backdrop, I would argue that there has to be a very fundamental awareness of how you put that into operation tactically. So if you're going to attack a battalion-sized Tatmador base, you should have minimum three-on-one. If they've got 100 men in that base who are ready to go down fighting, who will go down fighting, they're not going to surrender, they're not going to defect at this point, 
if you've got 100 men in that base, you're going to need to bring together 300 men to overrun it. And you need to overrun it quickly because airstrikes are going to be coming in as soon as the sun comes up. So, Anthony, you just said they should not hope for outside support. I would like to know, so do you really think or believe that they can pull it off without outside support or only with the very limited outside support they have? Maybe, Zach, you can start. There are weapons and ammunition. They, they are getting them. They're paying black market prices and they're paying a lot. So the money that the NUG has raised and, and they deserve a lot of credit for the creativity and the support of the diaspora community in particular. They publicly have stated they've raised over $100 million. dollars, um, But that just doesn't go very far in, in war and especially with what they are paying for their weapons and ammunition. So that's the first problem. Um, they're not going to get any support from the outside community. Um, there's going to be no uh, lethal assistance from the United States. Uh, and if the United States is not leading, no one will uh, join them. So they have to do this on their own. Um, and that is... A limitation to what they can achieve, uh, but it also makes it much more organic. No one can claim that they're being a puppet of the West. Uh, this is their own struggle. So commonly people say like all wars end with negotiations. So however, these negotiations only ever can become an option when both sides have the impression that they can achieve no more or have already achieved the best possible. How far away are we from that point where you think uh, there is a possibility of negotiation um, between the fighting groups in the country. And uh, maybe, Anthony, you can start first. Well, I think we're a very, a very long way from that position. And I think when it comes to what I would call Bama on Bama, in other words, the regime, the SAC regime and the... Um, NUG, it's, it's never going to happen. This is existential, right? The NUG has stated on numerous occasions that it intends to reduce, to, to overcome the Tatmadaw, to push them back into the barracks at very best, um, and prosecute a revolution in, in Myanmar. And the Tatmadaw has made it very clear that these are, quote, terrorists, unquote, who need to be crushed. And that's what they're doing every day. They're burning down villages where they uh, believe um, either that there's support from the local population or the local population are all terrorists themselves. So th there is absolutely no, it's existential. There's, there's no room for negotiation in a year's time or 18 months time or at any point. Um, as to negotiation between the Tatmadaw and the EROs, as we well know, this is entirely on the cards. It's the Tatmadaws. The Tatmadaw are pushing two lines right now. One is their plan for a so-called election in um, in August this year, which they will, will organize, manipulate, and make sure exactly what the, the so-called civilian government looks like that emerges from it. And the other Uh, side of their strategy is trying to pull the EROs away from the Bama resistance, mm -hmm. what they call terrorists. So, yeah, at that level, um, the Tatmadaw will always, and they've said this, we're always ready to talk. Now, one might hope that the EROs have seen this movie before and didn't enjoy it on the previous occasions and don't need to go back to it again. Because when the Tatmadaw uh, make deals, make ceasefires, as Zach pointed out much earlier in this, in this uh, podcast, what happens is they turn on one of the other EROs. So it's just a question of putting off the evil day. You can have a ceasefire this month and this time next year, They're going to be on your neck, bombing your villages again. So hopefully the EROs have learned the lesson the hard way and yeah. are ready to hang in for the long haul. 
if I understand what you said correctly, you said like um, the NUG is going after total defeat of the military. But at the same time, you said we are we cannot or we don't see it happening that the NUG with the EAOs will march to Napidor and like eradicate the Tatmadaw. So how, how can we bring this together? Let, let me let me say something very briefly and then I'll turn it over to Zach. My, my brief comment will be to the extent that the NUG have seriously thought about this, I would imagine, I don't know, but I would imagine the idea is that we chip away, we reduce the Tatmadaw as a fighting, as a coherent fighting institution to the point where some sort of shift happens within that institution. The best case scenario would not be a triumphal march into Napidor, but rather a fragmentation of the Tatmador. Could you imagine right now the frustration in Napidor? They've been fighting for two years. They have not consolidated power. Uh, the EROs continue to expand. They're fighting a multi-front war. Their four-cut strategy has failed to terrorize the population into submission. Could you imagine the pressure that battalion commanders are under to, you know, achieve victory? You know, the pressure that they're getting from the senior military leadership. And I, I think we have to understand that at some point, one stars, uh, generals, colonels are going to be given tasks that they know are unachievable. They can't fly the helicopters because there's too much ground fire. They cannot quickly move troops in and out. Um, they look at the pieces on their chessboard and say, those units are down by 15, 20%. They've been working on an operational tempo that is unsustainable. We cannot do this. And I think it's going to take some of those officers who are in operational control to basically come to the conclusion that this war cannot be fought. And they start to reach out to the NUG through back channels. Myanmar has a long history of generals putting more senior generals out to retirement. And I, I think that is possible here. As I've said before, you are not going to defeat the Tatmadaw, but you can hollow it out as an effective fighting force. At some point, there are going to be a cadre of officers who have not gotten all the, the graft and the, the, the gains of, of plundered national assets who are starting to be pissed off. They're not benefiting from the fact that the economy is tanking. And you're going to get a group of officers who want to make sure that they can protect the military, the military's position in politics, in uh, their, their commanding presence in the economy, and their uh, social status, which has always been quite high. And, you know, they want to protect the military as an institution. And hopefully you will get a group of officers that, that is seeking an off-ramp. Uh, right now, both sides have maximalist positions, uh, but that will change. I would agree. Let me just make a, yeah. a, a comment here. I, I would very much agree with that assessment uh, with one important caveat, and, and maybe it was implicit in what Zach just said, which is we're certainly nowhere near that point yet. And I think it's important to draw a distinction between um, what is being, how this war is being uh, planned and, and, and prosecuted from Napidor on the one hand, and on the other hand, the frustration and anger and fear that is being felt in uh, some isolated battalion uh, in the middle of KNLA Brigade 5 area, right? Uh, and I think at this point in the conflict, the sense in Napidor is very much, I, I, would, I would actually sort of 
you know, dispute to a degree Zach's use of the word frustration. To a degree, that there must be frustration. This whole thing has not gone as they planned, right? Any more than Putin's invasion of, of Ukraine went as he planned it. But we're two years into this, and these guys at, at that level of command in Napidor and in regional commands as well, probably, these guys are saying, look, this is going to be a long haul. We're not losing any township centers. If they if they try and take them, we're going to kill them all. Um, and we're just going to have to slog this out. And any sense, and I, 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 I've written about this a few months ago, and I tried to, to suggest in, in an article that I wrote that the use of the term desperation um, is totally misplaced when you're dealing with the upper echelons of the Tatmadaw. We love to think that they are desperate. They can't handle it. The, the country is up in arms, and it's only a matter of time before the, the Tatmadaw collapses. I, I think at, at this point, that is totally delusional. Um, there is no sense of desperation. There may be, um, and here I would agree with Zach's use of the term frustration. Clearly, they're frustrated. But at that level in Napidor, they're buckling down mm -hmm. to do what they've been doing since 1949, which is trying to retake this country and, and, and put it back under their control. It's what they've been doing for decades. And yeah, this is what these guys do. Uh, it's their it's their way of life. And if you get to the top of the stack, you can make a lot of money as well. So, yeah, I think we need to draw that distinction between Napidor's perspective on this at this time, this year, probably, for the most part, um, and what is happening at battalion level. And that is why I believe that it is absolutely critical that this year the resistance achieves that degree of convincing military momentum. Thank you very much uh, for your uh, sharing your insights and your knowledge. So I think I try to wrap up some points like 2023 is a decisive year for Myanmar. You both said that uh, the struggle is fundamental to what's happening in Myanmar. But you also said that there needs to be a change or adjustment in strategy and tactics, uh, including not only the PDFs, but also the EAOs, in order to bring the military to this breaking point. And I thank you very much uh, for uh, joining the podcast to our listeners. So thank you for tuning in and uh, please listen again to Myanmar in a podcast.